One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, Hilo here. We are back bringing you the fifth installment of our theoretical exploration into best ball theory and game theory. We're going to cut the fluff today. We are going to skip all the pleasantries. We're going to dive right in because we have a lot to talk about today. My guest, we're going to again bring him right in. You probably didn't know him before a month ago. If you um, if you didn't, you do now, uh, because we have John Warner back after that incredible first episode of this podcast series. After that, I had to get him back to continue this kind of exploration into the higher level game theory associated with best ball. Um, I would consider him one of the thought leaders in best ball game theory. Um, and, uh, we, we got a lot to talk about. We got a lot to say today. So with that, John, how are we doing, my dude? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. That was some high praise there. Thought leader words like this never been thrown around in my direction in my <laughs> life. Um, no, no, this is fun. This is uh, I really enjoyed the first time, and uh, I think we were just scratching the surface. So it's being dope to dive further in. Yeah, man, for sure. And the last time we caught up with you, we were thinking about meeting up for the main event. And funny story, here we are recording during, you know, what uh, is now the final table of the main event. So it's kind of full circle a little bit, but we both didn't even make it out uh, to Vegas for the main event. (laughs) What was going on with that, man? Yeah, man. I, uh, it's interesting because like a shocking update, seeing as though the the final table is going on right now or whatever, uh, I am not at it. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, big, big, big development there. Um, same, same. Yeah. Right. No, uh, you know, life just kind of got in the way and didn't prioritize it. But I, I was thinking about this, right. There was a point in my life where I would be extremely disappointed that I didn't make it out to this. I think I played it, I don't know, nine to 11 times in the last whatever non COVID years. I, I think I probably played it nine of the last 13 or whatever years. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I was thinking about it when, and then I was, and then I was relating it to basketball in my mind here where I used to, you know, have this like esoteric dream of like rounders and, you know, you go down there and you're going to win the main and you're going to run it up and you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Right. But in reality, like when you're moving money around every single day, playing poker and you're chasing a EV here and there, and then you're chopping equity in these tournaments and stuff like that. It makes a lot of sense to jump in the softest, biggest tournament on planet earth, right? Mm-hmm. Like where you can win life-changing money, but like, that's not really who I am anymore. Like I, I don't, I don't play these big, large live cash games every single day. Like I used to, and this sort of thing. So when I would go down there, it's just like, an EV swing, right? You would just be like, okay, I'm putting my 10K in. 
um, my buy-in's probably worth like slightly more than somebody else. And this buy-in's worth like 13K or whatever. And okay, yeah, that's just like part of doing business as a poker player when you're playing every single day. And if you don't realize the EV in that tournament, you're going to realize it in the cash game at the Bellagio for the next week and a half, or you know, you're going to be down there for a month and this sort of thing. But to just jet down there and play like the one isolated contest with one buy-in and one one-off, well, the most likely outcome is, is I'm just going to spend 15K and come back home, yeah. right? So it's kind of like okay, yeah, I guess I'm sad I missed out on the potential to make like life-changing money. But like the most realistic outcome was just kind of like I was just going to dump it and come back if I wasn't going down there to play for two weeks or play for a month or more. So it's very interesting when you think about that in relation to like these big gigantic uh, contests in best ball where it's like, if I'm just throwing like one dart and like, let's just hypothetically say like the BBM was worth like, you know, it was a, it was a $10,000 buy-in or whatever. And it's like, Oh, I'm just throwing like one dart. And this is the only dart I'm going to play. And this is the only tournament I'm going to play this calendar year. It's probably a pretty bad investment. Even if you are in the top 1% of players on planet earth, right? Like it's, it's very interesting to think about it in that context. And to be fair, I probably still would have gone down and taken the shot had it not been like other isolated shit that got in the way. But like, it's just a very interesting dichotomy to, to, to put in your mind where it's like, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that like, I'm not, I'm not a tournament sicko. Like I used to play the Sunday millions every single week. And I used to play like a slate on the Sundays every single week, but like, I'm a cash game guy, like through and through that was my MO, that sort of thing. So like, I, I don't think I missed out on as much EV as I once would have, but like, it's a very interesting like thought experiment to be like, huh? Yeah. You know, like, Maybe that bullet isn't worth as much as I thought it once was, you know? Anyways, yeah. long to say, no, I didn't play and I made no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. I, I kind of, uh, I, so I, yeah, I went down there at the beginning of the series. Well, about two weeks into the series um, for yep. what was supposed to be a, a back and forth. And my wife and I had talked about just, you know, moving there for, you know, getting an Airbnb and, and living in Vegas for four to six weeks during the series. Um that kind of that plan changed when we we realized that our puppy is just this like demon child. Um, <laughs> like, we can't take him to an Airbnb right now because he'll just chew everything and then we'll just owe all this money. So it's like, okay, well, at least like here we can keep him in a crate, keep him outside and he'll be cool. So then it yeah. changed to like, it changed to like me going back and forth. Well then like my, my, my first five day trip down there was just like, my wife was at home dying. She's pregnant. She's dealing with three kids, uh, four kids. Sorry. She had the two dogs and it was just like, yeah, I can't do this. So <laughs> it was like, that's hectic. All right, so. That's, that's fatherhood getting in the way there. That's yeah, grown up shit. <laughs> yeah. And then it changed to like, okay, well, I'll just go down for the main. And then the Arizona championship of poker was going on during the main here. It was $1,100 buy-in, pretty solid tournament, soft field. Um, yep. So I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to stay here and I'll play that. Like I can be home every night. It's a three day event instead of seven or eight. Um, it'll be great. And then I didn't even play that. So it's, just, <laughs> That's it's, it's been a, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, was that time. a, sorry, was that a talking stick? Like yeah. That? Yeah. That was a talking yeah, stick. That's a yeah. big, uh, that's a big, nice room. That's a good, yeah. That's a they, good uh, poker, poker venue. Yeah. They updated it not too long ago. Um, again. So it's a, nice. yeah, it's a, it's a pretty nice place anyway. Yeah. They yeah, that's a, a, yeah. yeah. That's a, I like that. That's just thinking about, um, 
what we're doing with our money in terms of EV, just that, that mindset, right. it's obviously so sharp. Um, yeah, man. Well, that said, that's kind of lead us kind of directly into what we're going to talk about. And I didn't, I didn't like preface this episode with like a layout of what we're going to talk about, like I've done previously, because there's just so much stuff I want to dive into. Um, okay. and I want to start it off with some tendencies, both personal and what we're seeing from the field with respect to stacking. Um, I want to know like what you're seeing from the field and how you are leveraging that um, in your own stacking uh, processes. Okay. Uh, first off, I would say that I, and I fell victim to this for a long time too, especially with the playoff contests last year mm-hmm. is I would build out stacks. And in my mind, I would always need the quarterback or I would need the quarterback to be a component, or at least it was top of mind that like, Hey, this stack isn't going to be as good as other people's stacks unless I have the quarterback. And I just think that's inherently flawed thinking now. Like, I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty bad to be honest. Like, I think there are definitely stacks where I, I want to have the quarterback and when the quarterback falls or whatever, like I want to build that way, but to build stacks, like with the notion that, Hey, we have to have the quarterback and two pass catchers, I think is a flawed mentality because you can build a lot of nice stacks with just like, you know, pass catcher two and four, and then one run back option. And that can be your stack for the entirety of a given draft. Right. And I think with all the talk associated with um, like week 17 correlation and stuff like this, I'm seeing stacking tendencies go too far. Like mm-hmm. they're going to the nth degree where, where we're pigeonholing our builds by stacking. And, and and this is a very niche community and a very niche like thought process associated with like the entire field's not doing this, of course. But I think as this knowledge becomes more and more commonplace, I think what you're going to end up seeing is Cooper Cup exposure isn't just going to be Cooper Cup exposure. It's going to be Cooper Cup plus Allen plus Williams or plus Williams or you know what I mean? Like where yeah. it's like people are over correlating the importance of that week 17, even though it's important it, but they're, they're overdoing it to the nth degree that like now every Cooper cup build that they have also has some form of chargers build attached to it. And I don't necessarily think that is correct. Yeah, man. I absolutely love that. And I've, uh, I think I, and we have explored a little bit of this together as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And and if we look, if we like take this back to take it to DFS and what are we doing when we're playing DFS and we, we see that like, or what am I doing when I write the end around? Um, You're familiar with that, right? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So like, what am I doing when I write the end around? I'm, I'm identifying what the chalk is. I'm then identifying how those pieces fit together. And then that leads me to a, a, an output that I call the chalk build. And if we like, for example, if we're in week 14 of the NFL season and running back, running back injuries are running rampant. We had a Monday night football game the week prior where the lead back on team, whatever got injured. They are now, that team is now on the 
main slate the following week and pricing has already been set. So the backup running back, whatever it is, whatever team is now priced at 3,500. 4, 4K, like, 4K. Yeah, 4K. Yeah, yeah. Back Going back to the old days where they're priced. So yeah, so yeah. the min price of 4K. Well, like we know going into that slate, right, that there's likely going to be 35, 40%, sometimes even more expected ownership, depending on what contests you're playing on that cheap running back. You know, if he's one of the ones where we can expect a large workload, all the yada, yada, yada. So if that's the case, like that doesn't just mean like I'm playing against the other 40% of rosters that have that player. But if we take that one step further, like that also means that those rosters that have that player are very, very, very likely to spend that the salary because we only have so much to spend on a other position of importance. Typically what we see is that is typically trickled down to the wide receiver position. So if you have like, if you have this going in knowledge that like two of my nine or 10 roster spots are going to be locked up with two very not specific players, but very specific ranges of players because we know like there's only so many high-priced wide receivers like you can start to back piece and backfill how the chalk build will look from there and if we're if we relay that into like best ball if we know like cooper cup and either keenan or mike williams because of adp are so closely tied together um and there's there's obviously there's other examples in the first few rounds um another one is a is a you know the team stacks the the ultra we'll call them the ultra stacks the you know the stefan Diggs and um his quarterback the travis kelsey and his quarterback like those those players in the first yeah three the Bengals one yeah 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 the Bengals. so if if we know that they're very very closely tied together and a lot of the rosters that have those players on them are going to be looking for this like this package deal thing or even like travis kelsey and then like javante williams like these these teams that are tied so heavily together because of the playoff schedule and everyone placing such heavy emphasis on that. Like it doesn't take a lot for us to be very different. Right. Like, right. I, no. I, I call it like secondary stacks or like um, even just like taking, like forcing a player. Like if you're still so concerned about week 17, it doesn't, you don't have to be outrageously crazy. You can just be like, Hey, I'm going to like, if I get, if I draft, Cooper cup on this roster. Like I'm going to pair him with like, I don't know. Um, Jared cook. Yeah. Uh, it's Joshua not Jared. Palmer. Cook. Yeah, yeah. Joshua Palmer and, uh, and Gerald Everett. Sorry. Jared cook last year. Um, yeah. but yeah, like we we're so what I'm seeing from the field is such a heavy emphasis on the primary stacking in week 17. And right, it's, yeah. like I said, like it doesn't take very much to, to get, creative or different or, or build leverage into those, um, particularly speaking to like the correlation and the game stacking built from those first five to seven rounds. Yeah. Well, let's uh, like that. That's just porting some good DFS knowledge into our best ball builds where it's like, we, we can get different in very easy ways without attempting to get different or like it's also putting an emphasis on ownership because if you look at like the overarching player pool and like ownership isn't something that's like really collectively talked about in the baseball streets right now but it's something that i put a huge emphasis on in these daily baseball contests i've been playing like i max yeah. all three tournaments every single day right like and it's it's fun as hell and like i've been crushing 
to be fair. Like, um, <laughs> like, but they're pretty low price points. So it's not like I'm making like life changing money or anything like that. But like, it's just good thought experiment. But you effectively know that like, hey, like out of these 36 players that are going to be drafted every single slate in these six man slates, like, you know, 25 of them get drafted every single draft. Right. So it's like, well, there's so much variance in baseball and like the top stack is only going to be the top stack, like 18% of the time on an isolated slate. So it's kind of like, well, what's the easiest way to win here? It's like, well, I don't know, maybe don't eat that chalk or maybe sometimes eat a portion of that chalk and then get different elsewhere, right? So I think we can apply this same sort of thought process over even a larger game sample where, in in my opinion, correlation matters less and less the larger the slate gets. So there's actually some some pretty sharp uh, baseball dudes that I know that have been doing this kind of thought experiment in DFS where they're just like DFS had always been like, you know, five man stacks plus a two man plus a three man plus a, you know what I mean? For baseball. And now guys are experimenting with like, yo, I'll never have more than a two man stack and I'll just play a bunch of one-offs. Right. Because look at what the field's doing. How can I leverage that? Right. So we've almost come full circle in terms of like, now we're just looking for the best plays again. Right. So it's all about like finding these isolated like windows of leverage. And I think one in, in terms of best ball right now is ownership where it's like, we have to recognize that of like the 260 players that get drafted, like every draft or whatever, I think that's the number, uh, every single draft, like, 85% of them are getting drafted in every single draft, right? So Mm -hmm. what are you going to do to get slightly different to leverage that ownership threshold? And I think like, yeah, maybe like not chasing those premium stacks and instead like throwing in like back stack one-offs like Nico Collins and Marvin Jones Jr., Let's like, go. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. but like, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's optimal. I don't know if that's sharp. I don't know if those are guys I want to invest in like heavily. Like I know, I know you like some of those targets and whatnot, but mm-hmm. just as a thought experiment, it's just kind of like, well, like my week 17 correlation doesn't have to be like my first two picks or it doesn't yes. have to be, you know, like, it's like, let's find a way that we can incorporate this theory but like, let's do it in a slightly more unique way than just like, okay, I took Cooper Cup in the first round. That means I have to take Matthew Stafford in the seventh or eighth. And that means then I have to find Van Jefferson at the end. And then we got to squeeze in Joshua Palmer. Like, it's like, well, yeah. no, everybody who has half a brain is like trying to do that same sort of thing. And that ownership of that build is going to be like exponentially higher than like, if you threw in Gerald Everett, right? Like it's just, it's a very interesting and I'm not suggesting Gerald Everett's a better play than Joshua Palmer and the contingency value and blah, 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 whatever, who gives a shit. But just as a thought experiment, it's very interesting to just be like, we saw the evolution of DFS go from like, Hey, we are going to build the best players and we're going to find the best points per dollar players. And then we're going to build those players out. And like my build is going to turn into the same as your build. And it's going to be a one V one, right? You know what I mean? And it's like, well, why, why the fuck would I want that? I don't want to do a one V one versus the field in week 17. You know what I mean? Like let's find different ways to, once we get to the promised land, like, diversify right like it's interesting yeah no there was a lot um 
there was a lot in there that that I think deserves some further exploration. But I think the the primary one was this idea of like ownership and slate size. So mm-hmm. I think that very tightly corresponds and, and correlates to the what is optimal um, on varying slate sizes. And if we bring in our DFS knowledge, like we know, like as as you alluded to, the amount of correlation that is considered or that is tied most directly to like the optimal lineup increases the smaller the slate gets. So like if you think about um if you think about showdown like yeah. you you have to basically hit exact optimal and typically on a one game sample size that involves a whole hell of a lot of correlation because if a wide receiver is optimal their quarterback almost you know 80% solution is going to be with them in optimal. So if you back that out to like a full Sunday slate or like we'll we'll use I guess like week 17 from last year where like there's no buys, right? So we have yep. we have all teams playing and the the main slate is like 28 teams or whatever, right? So if you have like if you have 14 games on the main slate, like optimal from a starting at an, a result and working backwards, optimal is most likely like potentially like a quarterback and his pass catcher. Again, it it depends on the archetype of that quarterback. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's a, it's a shit ton of one-offs. Like it's just, it's just what it is. And if that is optimal on a full slate of DFS, what the hell is a best ball of where it's full season? And like, exactly. it is, it is this exactly. massive, like, it's this massively like that is amplified, you know, f- factorially almost like it is huge when you think about it in terms of like comparing it to a DFS contest. And so if we like take that mindset, like, okay, well, what is optimal starting from a result and working backwards? Like it's probably just a bunch of these fucking one-offs. The problem is exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. There's a problem obviously with that is it's, it's so variance laden. Um, right. I'll say. We don't know. We well, can't, it, yeah. and it's also, it's also, it, it's not also only variance laden. It's just that like we have no build rules where we're just plucking things out of the sky, right? It's like, yeah, I know better and I'm just going to like continually pluck the best plays. It's like, well, everybody knows, or, or I hate saying everybody knows, but like we know that like the best play will always like win, right? Like from mm-hmm. an exploitative mindset, if we could just pick like the highest scoring person in every given week, we just win, right? And the the fact that like that's so difficult to do, we have to build out some form of like decision making tree to to aid our decision. And that right now is is some correlation and some ownership conversation that we're having right now. But I think it's also gone a little too far. Like the pendulum swung a little too far that we're throwing way too much importance on that. We got to dial it back a little bit and like, for lack of a better term, like play the best plays, but like, you know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah. Yeah. And like you said, then done. Even like taking that one step further and relating it solely to week 17, right? If mm-hmm. in the middle of that conversation, we just identified that like optimal in a week 17 contest where there are, you know, now we have in a best ball mindset, we have all 32 teams playing like, okay, so we have, we have 16 games going on. If optimal from a DFS sense in on a full slate like that is like 
a quarterback potentially with a pass catcher we don't know and then a bunch of one-offs like do we need to be overstacking on our best ball rosters and taking that one step further is it suboptimal well my answer is yeah it is like right. speaking yeah. from strictly like the isolated incident of one week and what optimal would be theoretically in that week like it is suboptimal to overstack like that's just a, a yeah truth i can think of, of i can think of one I can think of one Millie maker from last year that was like an onslaught. And that was awesome. Was, uh, when he shipped with the, the Seattle and lions game that was like super low owned. I think it was week 17 as well. Something like that. Anyways, mm-hmm. where, where it was like a five man onslaught. It was like, it was Lockett. It was DK. It was Penny. Penny. It was, yeah, it was a bring back. And anyways, but like just the thought was like, yeah, every other Millie that I can think of in my mind was like one-offs, right? Where it was mm-hmm. just like, oh yeah, you just ran pure as hell and hit the nuts with, you know, perfect, 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 right? And yeah, anyways, it was just, yeah, I'm just sharing that thought. Yeah, so like, I think what I've been trying to explore in this podcast series and and what my guests have been bringing out, like obviously you included, is like, ooh, if we, there's all this theory and all these angles and all this leverage that we're trying to build in DFS, there is almost none of that going on in best ball. So if we like just use the tools that we already have, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. But if we use the tools we already have through our, um, our, I, well, I'll call it our DFS acumen, like our, our expertise in the DFS realm, bring those over to best ball. We're not trying to like reinvent new shit, new tools, new everything else. But if we just like, do stuff that we know how to do that the field is not doing like we're not mm-hmm. making we're not making suboptimal plays we're just utilizing theoretical elements that the field isn't doing that we already know so it's mm-hmm. like uh yeah it's this i like the the kind of thought process behind that of, of trying to like relate it to dfs because i feel like the audience kind of knows um you know through what we've done at ows it kind of knows the at least the general aspects of what we're trying to describe there yeah i mean if i was going to pick like who's going to win like a bbm3 or who's going to win some of these puppy contests like i would heavily lean in the direction of like some talented dfs players before i would ever lean in the direction of football bro right because yeah you know like isolated player takes and stuff like that are great but like they have nothing to do with like building an overarching exposure portfolio to a large scale contest like this. Whereas that's exactly what the sickos building 150 every single day using fantasy cruncher are doing. Right. Yeah. Like it's just where it's like, okay, yeah. Like maybe we don't have the optimizer yet for, for best ball, but like the theory is still there. And like understanding that theory is so important in my mind. Right. It's just, but then, okay, the, the, here's here's one little thing. You said the word leverage, and I fucking love that word. Oh, sorry, I'm not allowed to swear. Yeah. No, 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 you get it, get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the word leverage because I think there are, like, there's this term, like, okay, the, the best ball community and this Lanishal circle on Twitter, like, we ruin r- words every year. Like, yeah. last year, we ruined, like, the crypto bro thing of, like, bullish and bearish, and that now everybody is like, oh, I'm bullish on this player, and I'm bearish on this player, and all this stuff. One of the ones that they're ruining the shit out of this year is micro edges. I've heard this little <laughs> slang being thrown around, and it's like, well, we're gonna find micro edges and stuff like that. Let's throw that one out the window, and let's use the term leverage, because leverage is just, like, a 
a sick word to imply what we're trying to do. And you said there there isn't ways of finding leverage. And I think I think in some avenues that's kind of correct. But like I also think there are like really small things that we can be doing to leverage small EV that may or may not ever be realized. And I'm gonna give like an example for instance. Yeah. Right. Last night I last night I won like two of the three contests for baseball, right? I think Maybe I won two out of the three or one out of three, whatever, who gives a shit. But (laughs) for the large contest, which was like, you know, 1200 entries and like a a eight or nine game slate, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? My exposure thresholds were like pretty diversified and then like very heavy on like a Coors game stack. Okay. Something like that. It was kind of chalky and whatever. But then for the isolated one game contest, which is like the same as showdown, I mm-hmm. just went all in on Shohei Otani and I found this as my extreme point of leverage. And I deviated from one contest to the other on the exact same given night on a given slate between an exploitative strategy and a GTO strategy based on the contest size and based on the games available. Right. So trying to find these one size fits all takes is like really, really hard like hard to do right because it doesn't apply because what i did on the exact same night in the exact same game environments in the exact same conditions i did completely different based on like a given contest size right Mm -hmm. and i just find it interesting because i found what i deemed a point of leverage in a game which suggests there's not that much leverage and it was the fact that otani had a zero projection for the isolated single game slate because he was pitching. So he wasn't a hitter. And how I leveraged that was, yes, I took Otani in every single draft. But how I further leveraged that is it's not good enough to just take Otani 101 every single draft. I looked at who was in the three-man draft. I saw screen names that I did not know. And then I pushed it to the nth degree where I was like, oh, in this draft, I can get away with Otani as my fourth pick. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So now I can eat some good players at the top with the 101, and then I can still get who my real 101 is on the back. And I think how we apply that to football is even if we had, even if we had the crystal ball and we looked ahead and we knew for a for certainty that the WR1 this year was pick a name. It's uh the WR1 is for sure gonna be Stefan Diggs, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we pick him at 101. You know what I mean? Because I yeah. think most people's thought would be like, oh yeah, he's the 101. Like obviously we take him at 101. He's going to score the most points. But that's not how you leverage, right? How you leverage is you routinely take him as far as he falls, knowing that I can build better com- auxiliary components around him with this knowledge, right? So I, I think there are like these fractional things that we can quote unquote leverage that like, you know, not everybody's always thinking about. Right. And um, yeah, I think that's just like one small isolated example, but like, I think there's other things like, like game conditions, for instance, and like time Mm -hmm. of day in which we're drafting and like, you know, people are like, well, I'm not scared to draft against, you know, the good players and whatever. But if you look at like, you know, when, when 
Pete Overzet's doing a stream and they're all jumping in that same BBM three contest. Well, wide receivers are flying off the board because everybody has the same thought process in there that they're all zero RB guys and they're all going to whatever. And that's going to drastically impact your builds. So sometimes I'll hop in those and I'll leverage that to my advantage and I'll just slam running back. And then I don't give a shit about the wide receiver because my builds are naturally unique. And then I'll just, you know, backstack with some other like profiles that I like that could smash that other guys aren't targeting later. Right. And it's just like, does, is that EV ever going to be realized? Like could Otani have gone uh, over three last night with three K's and that, and nobody ever knows that I had that leverage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course, of course that could. And no, and you know, like just, just in the same facet that, uh, CMC could play three games this year and nobody will know that like, Hey, I had 30%, you know? And it's like, well, maybe that was leverage. Maybe it wasn't, maybe the results don't show us whether it was leverage or not. Anyways, it's just like, it's a very interesting thought experiment about little like micro things we can do to create like optimal situations against our opponent, because it's not the same as DFS. DFS, everyone has the exact same knowledge in theory, in theory, not everybody has the exact same knowledge, but if you're a DFS sicko, everyone has the exact same knowledge at lock. And it's why everyone's cash build turns into like a one V one or a two V two V two, because they all land on like this same, this same result, right? When we're drafting within this window as variables are like, considerably unknown and shifting to no, the way you can build is so much different and you can actually exploit like these little like micro pieces of leverage. Anyways, it was just a little bit of a tangent associated with the word you said, because I love that word, especially in the context of player versus player, like peer to peer games, right? Because we can create little edges. Like I can create a little edge for someone right now by, Hey man, I'm drafting on my PC right now. I got four monitors going. I got, you know, I got projections over here. I got schedule over here. I got, you know, I'm following the board intently. I'm seeing who's stacking what, where, and like, that's an edge versus the guy who's like waiting for the notification on his phone. Oh, it's my pick. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a point of leverage right there, but we're not talking about these things yet in best ball. We're, we're hyper-focused on, you know, the nuances of the game because we're still trying to figure that out. When we zoom out further, like these are little edges that we can create that give us leverage and whether that ever realizes equity or whether that ever realizes like real financial dollars in my pocket. I, I mean, we'll never, we'll never know. I mean, it's just, but it's little things that you can do that these incremental, like small habits build up. Right. And they snowball. Yeah. Um, another aspect of, I think that's easily relatable about leverage is straying away from, I'll put it like the straying away from the binary tendencies of the field. So okay, we'll yeah. throw out a name where it's yes or no in the field right now. And that's, we'll just say Gabriel Davis, right? It's like, yes, he's going to be a fucking rock star or no, like he's being drafted at ceiling. Okay. Like that's, that's where the field is stopping. If you take that one step further and be like through the isolated event of one week, we'll talk about, or even two, three weeks, the playoffs, 15, 16, 17, whatever. If we take the isolated incidents of like only those three weeks or only week 17 and we go, if it is not Gabriel Davis, then who? 
So like using these, the way that I like to teach this is using those if then statements. So like if Gabriel Davis is not the player you need from the Buffalo Bills over those three weeks sample size of the playoffs, then who is it? Right. So like, yeah, I like that. It doesn't matter like how I feel about Gabriel Davis. It's like, yeah, I'll take him whatever. I don't, I don't know what my exposure is. I'm, I'm probably right at field. I'm probably right at like 8% right now, but that doesn't matter that it doesn't matter. So people will probably look at my exposure and be like, Oh, he's, he's not taking a stance on Gabriel Davis. Well, it's like, actually it's like the exact opposite. We know like the Buffalo bills are like one of the, or potentially going to be again, one of the top scoring offenses in the the league. So if, if I am 8% Gabriel Davis, if it is not Gabriel Davis that you need in those last three weeks, then who is it from the bills? So I have a, I have a grip of Jamison Crowder. I have a grip of Isaiah McKenzie, Dawson Knox, like taking these, we'll call them even like secondary to tertiary pieces of like just this unknowns of small sample size variants and working those into different lineups that don't have Gabriel Davis. So like, love it. The, yeah. the field is just like, Oh, I see Gabriel Davis. I stack with, um, I stack with quarterback. I stack with, uh, <laughs> with, I, it's like this yeah. caveman mentality yeah. of like, I right. must, I must do this and, and get Dawson Knox and I am correlated. It's like, yeah. no, like, okay, dude, well, everybody else is thinking that way. Like, can't we, can we, can we get past like this, like echo chamber of, of just what is happening at the field right now? So like, yeah, right. if that, that was a long way of saying like, utilize if then statements, like we don't know, we can't predict the future. Like Gabriel Davis might absolutely smash his ADP over the first season, get you to the playoffs and then get hurt or like get like, I don't know, like might put up a, a couple of games or like in week 15, he puts up like he's, he's a had to have a piece in the regular season. And then week 15, he puts up like two catches for, for seven yards. It's like, right. okay, well, like a lot of those Gabriel Davis lineups that made the playoffs are now not going to be in week 16. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway. Um, well, it's, it's interesting because when we dive into like the DFS streets and stuff like that, and if we're looking at an isolated slate and we're looking at week 15 and we go like, oh yeah, you know what? This is actually not a great matchup on the outside. We'd rather have like the Y receiver here, like the, oh, big slot presence, whatever. And then you, you back construct from that and then go all the way down where it's like, oh, it's super conceivable that like, hey, we have a bad corner matchup here where like the outside guy is locked down, slot's been killing, like this sort of deal. And all of a sudden you end up with, instead of Tyreek Hill smashing, Cedric Wilson smashes in yeah. week 17 for Miami. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you see this shit all the time. It's like, oh man, but I paid up. I paid up for Tyreek this week and it just didn't go as planned. When it's like, well, yeah, of course not, man. That's a variance of the game, right? And it's yeah. like, we have to be thinking about that possible outcome way down the line and then coming back. Right. And I think that if then statement is, is very good. And I'm not saying like, Hey, think about corner matchups in like week 17 or something. I'm just saying like, Hey man, it's really conceivable that Buffalo can pop, but it's like Dawson Knox goes four for 40 with three touchdowns. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Or, or, you know, Diggs goes 10 for 120, but he doesn't score and James Cook pounds in three. Like, you know what I mean? Like these outcomes are so possible where it's like, hey, everybody, everybody has a crystal ball and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, Buffalo smashed the Bills in, in week 17. And it's like, 
yeah, but they didn't score the touchdowns in the manner in which you wanted them to. So who cares? It didn't matter, right? So let's reverse engineer. If that doesn't happen, then what, right? So I think that's a very, I think there's a very sharp way of thinking about it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's um, what I tried to, like, obviously, like, this is all theoretical, right? We're all just kind of developing these these plans of attack and and how do we beat this game? We're all doing that right now. Well, if right. the field is stuck in like week seventeen, correlate win money, like it doesn't it it doesn't take a lot to to differ from that approach. And so that's kind of what we're we're trying to explore here and we're trying to get to. Um, I think that I brings it. up it brings up a very interesting thing about about like the feedback loop because. Mm-hmm. I don't think very many people like went back through all their best ball entries from last year, like reverse engineered, saw what happened, saw what went different, saw went, you know, they, I think everybody was just kind of like, Oh, I won some, I lost some. Oh, this, this had, this lineup had CMC. Of course I lost this lineup had like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But if you look at like, you know, the winning lineup and whatever you look at Liam's lineup and stuff like that, like he had some, he had some, like dust zeros in that lineup. I can't remember like who it was, but like, you know, he just, he just had different ways of getting there as well. And I'm not saying like it was an optimal lineup or it was whatever. There's mm-hmm. a lot of noise and a lot of variance and whatever, but it's just, it's just interesting to like the thought process associated with it is like, we don't have an immediate feedback loop in DFS. Yeah. Like we can, we can see the one isolated game slate or we can see the one main slate and we can go like, okay, where did I go wrong? Where could I have spent? Where could I have whatever? And be like super honest with ourselves. And it's very easy to do so. But in the course of like an entire season like this, I don't think the feed- feedback loop is going to take like years to realize whether we're good or we were making correct decisions or making right correlation plans and stuff like that. And I think that's why I've really gravitated to the baseball stuff is because I'm just reverse engineering a feedback loop for myself. And like, do our results like entirely indicative of, of someone being good at something? No, I honestly genuinely believe like, no, like, the, like I could just be on a heater. Someone else could just be on a heater, whatever they could maybe not actually be good. But if the feedback loop is the entirety of a season, like how many of these seasons do we need to know if we even know shit, right? Like yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's very, yeah. Right. So it's very interesting. So um, yeah. Anyways, I, it was just a, a little sidebar thought about like a potential feedback loop idea based on what you were saying there. Yeah. Because- and so like, even you brought up Liam's lineup. Um, and if you're not familiar, Liam Murphy, we're talking about, he won the BBM last year, which was at the time the biggest best ball contest ever on planet earth. So um, a dude that, uh, knows what he's doing. Also poker background kind of guy, thinker, DFSer. Uh, anyway, uh, chess, chess, chess guy. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, his, yeah, I think his, his Twitter handle is chess Liam, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, if we, if we look at what, he, I guess what differentiated him was a singular player in Rashad Penny. Like, I don't know how, what his ownership was in, that final week 17, but it had to have been minuscule. So mm-hmm. what I think the field is getting stuck on when they do those that are like reverse engineering this, they're like, well, okay, we just like, we take random shots at like upside running backs that we have no idea about and like just let variants take over. Right. Well, like yes and no, because that kind of ties into 
something else I want to talk about today. And that's like closing off sections of the game tree. And the, what the field is doing is they're taking these binary stances on players, on builds, on everything associated with best ball. And when you take a binary stance like that, well, you know, again, we'll, we'll talk about Gabriel Davis uh, just because it was an example we used earlier. Yep. If, if your take on Gabriel Davis, who is now like in the fourth round, right? So like premium, premium pick, if your take is absolutely not, well, you are closing yourself off to an entire section of the game tree that you like, what if Gabriel Davis is like one of the three or four optimal wide receivers from week 17? Okay. Well, you will not have any, if you were taking the other side of that and saying, I am all aboard Gabriel Davis. Well, now you're closing yourself off to a such a massive portion of the game tree where it's right. like if you're saying like, I want Gabriel Davis, I don't care what cost, like you're going to end up with like 30, 35 percent of Gabriel Davis. Well, like you are like 35 to 40 percent of your lineups are going to be very specifically tied to one area of the game tree. What I'm trying to get at that. And again, I'm not going to explain what the game tree is, because hopefully we've done that sufficiently um, on previous podcasts. but like. If you are limiting your exposure to the game tree, and we talk about like the best ball season and our 18 roster spots on a specific lineup are that game tree, but it's what makes it up. If you are closing yourself off to portions of that game tree, you are severely limiting your expected value from a first place, a potential first place prize money mindset. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is basically you are saying that I know better than the other 450, whatever thousand lineups in the contest. I know exactly what the end result roster construction is or the end result um, path down that game tree. And I guess let's relate. Let, I'm going to take this idea backwards a little bit first. Okay. How can we relate this to something that everybody knows? Well, let's think about like a, Let's think about a street grid in a city as our game tree, right? You, everyone has the same starting point. They're, they're leaving from the same starting point and they're trying to get to an endpoint, which is optimal. Okay. Our, mm -hmm. our endpoint is just like optimal. Okay. That's what we're trying to do when we're drafting. If you take a binary take on a player like Gabriel Davis or on a, player we'll use a first round example of derrick henry who's probably you know one of the more polarizing first round draft picks if you take a binary take on that player you are basically closing off a roadway which could be optimal you are saying this road is closed like i cannot Yo, I, go this path okay i got this i got this you ready All for right. this yes get it i'm i'm driving from my house to your house right we're uh -huh. using this road example. Mm -hmm. I go, hey, I drive down number one highway and then I take left on number two and I'm at I'm at Mark's house, right? Mm -hmm. There's another way to get to your house. Mm -hmm. If the light is red, I can turn right and then I can zigzag my way through based on this, right? Mm -hmm. So if I take this binary stance that the way I get to Mark's house is is I go straight, I go through these lights, then I turn left, then I'm at his house. It couldn't be as optimal. It'll get me to your house, right? 
and it'll get me there in eight to 10 minutes, but it not might, might not be the optimal path to your house if I let the lights guide me. So if I pull up on the green light and I go, okay, this one's green, I'm gonna hang a left here because I can I can hang a left on that. Oh, oh, we hit a red, oh, now I'm gonna hang a right and I'm gonna slowly zigzag and meander my way to there. And now I'm there in seven minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So it it, 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 it it creates an interesting path because like the binary take is I get to Mark's house straight and then a left and that's like yo my path to victory is gabriel davis right Mm -hmm. well that path exists for me too but i'm only taking it if i catch a bunch of green lights right if i catch a bunch of green lights on highway one and i go green 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 yeah i'm going i'm going gabriel davis avenue right Uh but if i if i catch that first red well now i'm going right you know what I mean? So it's it's yeah. it's very interesting. Like I think if, that was kind of like the analogy, right? Yeah, yeah. So like if if Gabriel Davis gets injured, say for example, that now Gabriel Davis Highway is closed, right? Like right. that road is closed. You can't go exactly. that way to get to Optimal, to get to 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 John's house. Right. So closing yourself off to potential paths on the game tree is entirely theoretically suboptimal. Right. And so taking these ones and zeros approach to player eval, and I think this is going to lead us directly into something we're going to talk about next, but, um, and that's player eval rankings, all that good stuff. Um, but if you, if you're taking these binary stances, you are closing yourself off to potential outcomes towards optimal. And that is suboptimal, even in the limited exposure of 150 rosters. Right. Yeah. And you, okay. So here's, here's a very interesting thought process associated with that is people equate like GTO or randomness or percentile allocations to players as like not having a take. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like I am taking a stance here. I'm just taking a fractional stance, right? Mm -hmm. My stance doesn't have to be exactly like you said, one or zero. It's not Gabe Davis, one or zero. It's Gabe Davis sometimes. Maybe mm-hmm. it's Gabe Davis at, at 50. Maybe it's Gabe Davis at 40. Maybe it's both, but fractionally represented by uh, 17% at that threshold, 40 at this threshold and whatever, right? And I think there's a misconception by having like quote unquote balanced exposures and and giving what the draft take or like taking what the draft gives you and having this like fluid like processes i think it's misconceived as like well that's just like you don't have a you don't have a take man like you don't have a you don't have an avenue right and it's kind of like well no 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 like uh, i i definitely i definitely have a take here it's just price sensitive mm-hmm. yep yeah i don't yeah no dude i love it um i think that's gonna take us right into what we're Sorry, excuse me. Um, fighting through a cold here. I didn't want to cough into the microphone, so I just kind of like ate it. I swallowed the cough. <laughs> um, that's going <laughs> to uh right into this idea of rankings. And like, what is, what is a ranking? And this actually came up from a question that arose from an OWS sub that was looking at my rankings. And he said something to me, a question through DMs that was basically to the effect of, hey, I see in your rankings, you have Trey Lance ranked as the quarterback 16 or whatever I have him as. But I see that you are hyping him a little bit on Twitter. Like what is, are these rankings biased towards best ball or redraft? And my answer was, well, it kind of depends. I guess in a too long, didn't read version, these rankings are better suited to redraft because like we said earlier, you have 
varying things that you can do during the season to, to manipulate and influence those rankings. In best ball, you are thinking about a range of outcomes from the multitude of players that can make up your game tree for an isolated roster. If and, and why is that? Because we don't have the ability to utilize waivers. We don't have the ability to set our lineup. Like it is all done. It is locked once we're done drafting. So like if we yeah, think you don't about have replacement value. Yeah. So if you think about like what is most important from a player, um, from analyzing a, a player, is it like median outcome, which is rankings rankings are like, Hey, this is the 50% solution for this player. Like where ranked against all other players. No, like it's more optimal to think about each player's overlapping range of outcomes and how those, I guess, are compared to the other ranges of outcomes of players within that tier. Hopefully that was not too convoluted. Hopefully that was easy to follow. What say you hmm. with this like range of outcomes mindset with drafting best ball? Um, okay, I'll say one like overarching thing about rankings. I... I, I build them. I look at other people's. I pay for other people's. I pay for other sites, best ball rankings. I, I look at them all. I don't use them. Mm-hmm. I don't put them in my queue. I don't build out like, you know, on the site where it's like, hey, put your rankings because I want to leverage those by being privy to like the ADP knowledge and whatnot and reverse engineer against that because ADP is driving the draft for let's call it six of the 12 players in the player pool. And then I know there's another two that are, you know, using X site and another two that are using Y site. And I can then, you know, be aware of where I think they're going with, with different things. So that's just one overarching like rankings take. I have rankings open. I have rankings that I'm, that I'm looking at and balancing and, and utilizing. And I'm aware of all the information, but I'm not physically drafting off rankings. Why am I not physically drafting off rankings? Well, because of this first leverage component. And the second component is exactly what you've touched on, where I'm worried about range of outcomes opposed to being worried about mean projections. Because mm-hmm. effectively... And and I think we saw this when like like fantasy pros came into the market, you know, whatever it was, like five, six, whatever years ago, and they started doing those cumulative, uh, what are they called? The e- ECR, yeah. yeah they, so they started doing the ECR rankings, and then you know people would look at the ECR rankings, and then they would set their lineup for the week in their home leagues uh, according to that. I think that was an inherently flawed exercise because just because you have you you have you have um, uh, let's use guys that you love. You have Penny um, ranked 101 for this week, and then you have uh, Chase Edmonds ranked 20 for this week. And then all of a sudden, we look on the ECR projections, and you combine that with my projections, and we arrive at like Penny being wide receiver 10, o- or I mean, running back 10 overall. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's not helping anybody because you actually have him running back number one, like ceiling outcome is what you're projecting. So how does it help me to look at a ranking and go, okay, I'm trying to decide between 
you know, Edmonds and, and Penny and somebody else's rankings are now lumped in with your, with your stance on Edmonds there. And that brings him up to number 12. And now I'm looking at two running backs that are ranked 11 and 12. And it's like, well, flip a coin between these two where in an isolated rank that you have of ceiling projections, one's actually ranked one and one's ranked 20 and that 19 picks of difference like matters. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. So, so I think we've kind of done a disservice with like trying to project like mean outcomes because like, even in like these, I keep going back to the baseball thing because it's so top of mind where it's like every single day, like people are projected for like, you know, like players are projected between like 12 and nine DraftKings points or you dog or underdog uh, points for the, for the, for the given day. Well, it's like if you hit one home run, that's 14 points right away on underdog, right? So it's kind of like, <coughs> well, like how are we projecting Ronald Acuna as the best player on this slate, but he's only projected for like 12.3. But if he hits one home run, he gets 14. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's like, well, because these are mean outcome projections and we're not actually chasing the highest scoring. We're not chasing the highest mean scoring. We're chasing the outlying scoring of these home runs. Right. And that's why, you know, Hey, a guy like, um, sorry, I'm going to use baseball again. <laughs> a guy, a guy like, like Stephen Kwan, right? Like he's going to lead off today and he's, he's in a good matchup and he gets on base and he steals, he steals bases and the, and this sort of thing. And it's like, Wow, yeah, he's projected for eight points. But then there's like CJ Crone, who's hitting in cores, who drives in a lot of runs, and he only hits like 250. Actually, he's having a better year than that. But yeah. let's, in theory, he only hits he only hits 250, and we're basically just chasing home runs. Well, it's like, how are they both projected for eight points when a home run or two home runs can break the slate? But you know, two runs scored, two steals, and three hits isn't going to break the slate, right? And it's like, well, let's chase the ceiling of CJ Crone, even though they're both projected for eight points, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, those players aren't the same. And the profiles yeah. of those players aren't the same. And if you routinely draft Quan over Crone, you're doing it wrong, right? And I think this exists in, in a lot in best ball where we have to be chasing certain profiles and certain types of players that can break slates. And this goes back to your original analogy, like from our previous episode of like the whole Melvin Gordon thing, yeah. right? where it's like, you know, like this isn't a profile we're chasing. We're not chasing, you know, mean projection outcomes. And because he's in the ranks at like, you know, everybody's ranked 28 or whatever he is for, for Melvin Gordon. So well, like, no, he's not actually 28. That's just like, he's, he's most likely going to score 130 fantasy points this year, but the way in which he scores them is not something we're looking for. So mm-hmm. yeah, long winded way to say that, like if we just port mean projections into like a ranking system, we're doing ourselves a disservice, especially when we're chasing a ceiling outcome. Yeah. And that, yeah, goes, because- that ties in, that ties in player profiles, that ties in uh, range of outcomes, thinking that a lot of the stuff of what we're talking about today all ties together very tightly. So uh, mm-hmm. I love it, man. Um, well, it, it's, a, it's also interesting because the, the here, here's something that's different than like, then like, let's talk about it like a exploitative versus GTO stats here, where it's like, if I just took like 100%, like, let's just say I was, uh, I was in love with, let's keep using the Gabe Davis. And I took him 100%, no matter what, every single draft 
forget ADP. I have 100% exposure to Gabe Davis over the course of like 150 builds. Uh-huh. That is not the, even if he smashes, that is not the, I mean, like he would really have to, he'd have to be like WR1 for then you to be like in the final week. And then he'd have to be WR1 and he would have to smash in weeks 15 and 16. And then he would be like, you would have like uh, 60 teams in the final week. That's not what we're striving. Like that, uh, that outcome is amazing, right? But that's not what we're striving for. We're striving for one isolated smash team to win the overall. Like, would it be amazing to get like 60 teams through? Of course. Like, is it, is it possible? Probably not. And taking like such a hard stance on a given player to like then thrust you to do so it's it's very hard the bigger the slate is i don't know if that made sense but like it's just yeah where it's like that's kind of why like we quote unquote like in in quotations balance exposures because we're looking for one very specific targeted outlying outcome and the best way to do so is to leverage little bits of knowledge over and over again across the entire game tree opposed to just like driving down that one highway like the analogy was and get there like sometimes you can go 170 miles per hour on that on that one highway and yes it'll always be the fastest way but like that out the likelihood of that occurring is very very slim right Mm -hmm. yep no dude i love it um next i want to talk about these kind of over since we last spoke, um, what four weeks ago now, there's kind of some new developing plus EV situations across the landscape of the NFL. Uh, so I want to spend a, just a quick couple of moments talking about like what those are, what they look like, how to identify those. Um, I think the best example from a potential ceiling versus cost of acquisition Um, is the Kansas city backfield. So you look at like where CEH is going typically in the seventh to eighth round, Ronald Jones is now in the what 11th to 12th rounds. So both of these backs are like mired in this ambiguity because we like reports are like, Oh, Ronald Jones has a chance to, on CEH is like the lead back. We don't know what like the lead back usage is going to look like in that backfield. Well, like my answer is that doesn't matter, dude. Like that is one of the more high profile backfields in the league. You know, there's obviously the, the one that's getting all the hype and all the uh, attention right now is Buffalo because again, ambiguity, they brought in a rookie uh, pass catcher. What is Devin Singletary's usage going to be like? Okay. People are taking stances either way. Right. But like, if we take that one step further and like look at like Kansas city and the ADP of the respective, like two highest players there, like even Jarek McKinnon, he's going undrafted, but he's there as well. Um, mm-hmm. And when he didn't have to be like, you know, they brought him back to be there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like m- my answer is like, you don't have to have a stance, but like, I f- feel like a lot of the field is either, a one or a zero with Kansas city backfield. And then they're breaking that down even further one or a zero with those two individual players in CH or Ronald Jones. Well, my answer is like, there's so much hidden upside in Kansas city's backfield that the field is really paying no particular attention to. You don't have to take a stand be like, 
take, take a isolated sample of like five drafts in your draft window. If you like leave that five drafts with like one CEH share and one Ronald Jones share, and they're on different lineups that are built um, kind of with that in mind, like you are leveraging the field because the field is not thinking like that. They're like, nope, I'm not touching that backfield because we don't know what's going on. Or they're like, I know exactly who of the two is going to be the guy for Kansas City this year. And it's like, well, if we look like like five months now down the road into, into what November and December, like when weeks six, 15, 16, and 17 are going to be happening... Like if we look way down there, like we have no idea. Like one of these guys, because of the team that they play for and because of that offense that they're on, one of these two like might be a had to have a piece and we have no idea who it is. So I'm kind of trying to mix and match exposure through that backfield in that situation because right now the field is a one or a zero and they're either all in on one of the guys or they're paying no attention to the backfield at all. Uh, yeah, and I think this is um, a very interesting thought process associated with like the content-based industry, where over the course of the next you know two months or whatever it is, I think it's sixty days or something like that to football or whatever. Um, fifty-six gonna, days, bro. Fifty-six days. There you go. We're gonna get. I got. I got to start drafting more. Um, <laughs> oh, this is this is gonna air tomorrow. Fifty-five days. Shit. Uh, there you go. Um, but like, we we are we're effectively going to see more and more and more content and more recreational players joining the progressive, like progressively as it ramps up and gets closer that we can leverage all of this content. So like the Gabe Davis thing, for instance, now the KC backfield thing where like these hot button topics become more and more popularized across like even larger um, windows and not just like this, this niche fantasy football, best ball, uh, like sickos window, like it now all this knowledge becomes like quote unquote common knowledge across everyone. And everybody's talking about this backfield battle. Well, it's going to create progressively like ways for us to like leverage, right? Like mm-hmm. it's going to happen because like the conversation this week is going to be this player. Then it's going to be this player. Then it's going to be this backfield. Then it's whatever. And I think it's just progressively staying on top of you know, all these things and then keeping an open mind to the fluidity of all these potential situations is as much research and as deep as you go. And, and you could be a hundred percent, right? Like you could take a stance and you go, Ronald Jones is the guy. Ronald Jones is amazing. Ronald Jones is going to win this backfield. Ronald Jones comes out. He has 20 carries in the first week. He sets the slate on fire. Like, you know what I mean? He becomes the number one fab pickup in whatever. I, you know, like he's probably going to go drafted. But anyways, like dude, let's just create that narrative. Yeah. And and then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, like the next week there's a better matchup for CEH and there's a different game script and he like fizzles out, gets hurt, and it doesn't matter at all, right? And it's like, you can be so right and still it not matter at all. So you have to open yourself up to the potential of if-thens of all this, of, of, of every isolated situation, mm-hmm. right? So we can leverage this situation in multiple ways. And I think what you're effectively saying is that we do not leverage it in a binary fashion, Yeah, right? Like, it's just like, <laughs> You know, you're you're a hundred percent correct in my mind that like you can apply this to uh, New England, for instance. Like you could apply it to like you know Harris versus Stevenson, 
like, oh yeah, well, Stevenson came on late in last year and he's clearly a more talented rusher and blah, blah, blah. You can go all as far deep with the 1v1 player take as you want. When the fact of the matter is, is like, hey man, when Harris falls like 12 spots in one draft and I only got two running backs, like I'm probably going to take him. If Ramondre falls, you know, eight spots and I only got two running backs, I'm probably going to take him. Like, you know, like in, in those isolated instances, because, you know, I think maybe they're both talented or maybe I think Stevenson is more talented. Like it doesn't effectively matter because we do not know like the future outcome. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people say bet on ceiling, bet on talent, bet on like, of course, like, yes, of course we're incorporating all these things, but it's also just like, man, like it's not ones and zeros. Like that's just exactly what you're saying. Right. Yeah. And so like, what is the, you know, I brought up, I brought up Seattle's backfield and Miami's backfield. The first podcast we did now I'm bringing up KC backfield and you threw in new England's backfield. Well, like, what are we, what are we hunting for? What are we targeting right now? Well, it's these instances of ambiguity with those particular backfields, because we know one, they're on teams that are going to feature or if not feature utilize heavily the running back and whoever is filling that role. And two, the ADP is basically in this nebulous range of ambiguity because people don't know and they're taking these ones and zero stances, but to mitigate those ones and zero stances, they're not taking them for a while and that drives their ADP further to the right. So right. I think variance is our friend. Yeah, Embrace exactly. that. Like we shouldn't be steering clear of, of uh, a situation that is like muddy. Like we shouldn't be steering clear of muddy water. We should be diving headfirst into it. You know what I mean? Like it's like, yeah. We, we we don't have to like not knowing is actually leveraged in our favor sometimes. Right. Like, yeah, because what's going to happen when the field gets the common knowledge boost in their bucket of common knowledge that like, Oh, Hey, uh, Clyde Edwards Hilaire has run with the ones exclusively in preseason. Okay. Well, he's gonna, he's gonna move from a, a seventh, eighth round pick up to a fourth round pick. So what you are doing now is you're leveraging that uncertainty and the variance associated with that ambiguity. And you are getting exposure to both sides of that because it doesn't matter what the outcome is. You have exposure to both sides. And so like this idea of like shying away from unknowns and and from ambiguity and from variance, particularly in like this draft window we're still in, it just is mind blowing to me. Um, I want exposure to that. I am last time we spoke, I was through, I think 48 drafts. Um, and this was four weeks ago. Um, I am through 120 of my 150 BBMs. We were talking about, yeah, we were talking about last time how I didn't know if I was going to stop at 50. I didn't know if I was going to push it to 75. I blew past that because like, I am just like, I, the field is still not over the last four weeks. The still, the field is still not embracing the variance and the unknowns with the ambiguity associated with drafting right now. So I'm just keeping my exposure to all this variance. And while I have to understand while I'm doing that, what I am opening myself up to, like Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a very variant season. I'm not going to, I'm not going to have a break even season or a lose a little bit season. It's going to be like, I'm shooting for the moon or I'm this, this close to four grand is gone. Um, and that's something that I've decided consciously to do, but at the same time, as I'm doing that, I have to understand how to maximize 
my expected value from that exposure. 100%. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Like that's the exact same approach I'm taking, but I'm doing it in a more slightly more balanced draft window um, Mm -hmm. where I don't think I can be quite as exploitative as you are now and like taking advantage of like this window because I, I don't think I know like that much better maybe in this, in this isolated window. Like I, I I don't have like such a strong belief in my own abilities that I would rather just progressively balance it. Mm -hmm. Like in terms of like my, my belief in my abilities is structurally and how I can balance a portfolio and Uh when and where I can draft in given windows and that sort of thing. I think that's my strength more so than like knowing that Adam Thielen's good, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's just, that's my, I think that's my personal strength. And I think both approaches can like definitely work. And if you're like, you know, value hunting right now where you're like, Oh my God, this is so broken right now. You're, you're probably chasing very good EV, but I think we're chasing the same outlying EV just in slightly different fashions. Yeah. hundred percent. And relay relating that to listeners is identifying your strengths. We talked about this ad nauseum last year at OWS through DFS as well as identify what your strengths are, and then develop mm-hmm. a game plan to maximize the EV associated with those strengths. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, it, I think it's very very important to be brutally honest with yourself when it comes to like all these games. Like, if you're losing, like identify why you are losing. Like, is it variance? Is it is it incorrect builds? Is it not understanding uh, game conditions? Is it not like there's there's so many things that we can like progressively learn from but if you just shut it off and you just go like oh yeah cmc got hurt in the first quarter of course i lost this week like no like you 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 have to build you have to build a a different mentality associated with the game to to win in my opinion i just yeah I, i i i you just see it way too much and i've seen it in poker for years where it's like these people are still like these people in quotes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like there are people that are just like very, very bad regs and they literally just think they just run worse than everybody else forever. I've been a very like good profitable poker player and for a long time and I've ran really, really bad in a lot of things. Like, you know, like it's, it's both can be true. And so just um, blaming external factors and not taking ownership of your own abilities and beliefs because it's a game laden with variance is inherently flawed. Like I think as much as we should be building to embrace it and all this sort of stuff, we have to be so brutally honest with ourselves to be like, yeah, man, last year uh drafting six running backs in these sort of builds with this sort of correlation and whatever was a terrible idea you were a fish last year you were an idiot mm-hmm. let's now fix that problem or whatever like you know like it's just a very micro example but i think it's just like but like you got to take ownership and and i think that's a that's a very important part of this game that's under discussed yeah 100% man and i i kind of revamped 
the entire my entire process for best ball drafting after last year because I was taking a very good um, as you should. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was we should progressively. A, we should all progressively be doing that. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it, like something that I hadn't done until last year, and and it just comes from like the my process from DFS, and I was not. I was slow in translating that over to best ball. And like, that is what I wanted to fix. That is what prompted this exploration this year. That's what prompted me going from a, um, more like get as many teams through mindset and, and managing variants to like, let's just fucking go and embrace and let's shoot for the moon type thing. And I don't know. I, I don't have enough sample to be like, I don't know what is right here or right, like, yes. I, I can't be certain what is right, but I know that, from a process standpoint, my best ball strategy was not where it should have been last year and aiming to fix that this year. And that's what Dude, I think and, everyone needs and to We're going to look back on this. We're going to listen back on this in like five years and be like, oh my God, we were fucking idiots, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. because, and as we should, as we should, but is it working right now? And can it win right now? And can it win in isolated samples for like a next little bit here? Absolutely. But could could we also realize the variance runs negatively in our face? Yes. Or could we also be like completely off base and be losing players? Potentially too, right? Like these are the range of outcomes. Like we talk a range of outcomes with players. Let's talk about range of outcomes with our process, right? Mm-hmm. Like th- just be honest with it. Like this isn't, you know, this isn't like written in stone text. Like I hope to be very wrong in the future, but I hope to solve why I was very wrong faster than everybody else. Right. Like it's just, that's, that's the thing. Like my process with these, like now that I've done like 30 days worth of these baseball drafts, my process has changed exponentially. Like my process is constantly fluid. It changes slate to slate. It changes. And the same thing was true with, with poker. Like I'll go back and I'll watch, like, you know, I used to do some coaching videos on uh, like uh, Phil Galfon's first site, Blue Fire yeah. Poker, before it was even run at once. Mm-hmm. And like, you can go dig in the archives and there's like old like videos of me playing like 400 and L and like Rush Poker and stuff like that in there. And it's just like, oh my God, what was I doing? Like even during like COVID there, I went back through like my old database, like my old HUD. And I just like went through like hands and hands of the past. And I made like a little Twitter thread about it. And like, yeah, I nobody that. really, yeah, yeah, nobody really paid uh, attention to it, but I was like, you know, I was just I drinking you. some, uh, yeah, I was just drinking some beers and bullshit and, and making fun of myself because it's like, Oh my God, I did what I lit a thousand dollars on fire like that. What was I thinking? Right. And it's just like, well, we're going to look back at this and be like, what were we thinking as we progressively learn and this game develops and the game tree develops and the tools we can utilize develop. And it's just, you know, you, you go look back at like the DFS lineups I put in like five years ago when I was like trying to like max the milli, like even maxing the milli, I was so dumb. Like, what was I thinking? I was like, oh yeah, there's so much EV here. Like people don't know how to ch- build and like all this stuff. Like what was I thinking? Like doing that every <laughs> single week, right? Anyways, yeah, it just, yeah. it's like every single dollar I was putting into that milli, I was, I was getting like minus three back, like every entry, like what was I thinking? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, it's very interesting. And it's just, it's, I think it's just, we got to be so honest with ourselves throughout this process. And like, I, I think I've really enjoyed partly because I've never done this kind of stuff before, but I've really enjoyed doing this with you is because I articulate and put into words like things that I'm thinking, but I don't definitively know. And we can just kind of like bounce them off one one another. And it, mm-hmm. it, it really helps. Like, this is part of my process now. Like, this is great. Like, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, dude. 
Well, that said, man, I think that wraps up everything I wanted to cover. Do you have any parting shots before we get out of here, man? We're going up on uh, an hour and a half now. No, I think I think I think that's great. I um I, I'll I'll say one one last little like tidbit here. Mm-hmm. I think you need some skin in the game in terms of like think about this. If you want to go to the gym and get fit, getting a membership is is not enough, right? Because because now the onus is all on you. But if you get like a personal trainer and they hold you accountable for every single day that you're gonna show up. Now you're more likely to show up because a it's more expensive and b there's a definitive time in which you have to go right. Mm-hmm. I think though this is a fun game and you know like w- this is this is a hobby for everybody and and that sort of thing. I do think it goes a very long way in the same way in which like people listening to this like our inner circle people at OWS. I think it goes a long way to get some skin in the game and see people's projections, see your opponent's projections, not necessarily using them, but you know, if you're going to spend, even if you're spending $500 on, on entries over the course of this season, you know, drop 30 bucks on this site, 30 bucks on that site, drop, you know, the 200 bucks for the inner circle on this site, like just, and utilize all of this knowledge and whether you, I I wouldn't suggest like, copying this knowledge and whatever that's not how you learn but just dive into it and understand why 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 one person evaluates this way and that way why one roster construction suggests this and the other suggests that because like the best advice you could possibly give is you're not going to become a winning player replicating how winning players win you have to develop a process of your for yourself understand the thought process behind it and then develop a strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Because you see it all the time in like, you know, I see it all the time in poker where it's like, hey, this player is really good right now. They play this way and people start trying to replicate it without understanding the fundamentals behind it. And it's just like, oh, I saw him do this with ace 10. Well, it's like, no, he did that with ace 10 versus this opponent versus this stack size versus this, like, you know, and understanding all the variables. So like the biggest thing I would say is just like, continue to dive into other people's information and other people's thought process, but then just come back center and think about it all for yourself. Right. And like, what does this all mean? Like, you know, like don't take what I'm saying as like gospel, like, you know what I mean? Like, don't take this as like, this is, this is the way, this is the answer. Like criticize what I'm saying, criticize what Hilo is saying. Like, you know what I mean? Like, let's, let's have some open discourse and some, and some debate, but don't take a binary stance on any of this, including the knowledge. Yeah. It's like, if you like, why am I so drawn to game theory or the (laughs) theory of games? It's like, I take what I know, I take what I think everybody else knows. I take the information that is available to everybody and I take the contest rules and you're building a game plan for you to beat that specific game. Is that going to be the same for everybody else? No, everybody has to develop their own game plan with, you know, taking in all these factors of like what, you know, whatever the field knows, what you think everyone knows, and then what the contest rules are and developing your game plan for beating that game. And that's just exactly. what we're doing here. And that's that's the thought process we're trying to trying to hammer home. Love it. All right, John, dude. It was a more than a pleasure catching up with you again. I'm so glad that uh, you were able to come on uh, again. Uh, this was awesome, dude. And I think we might need to uh, 
we might need to do something with you during the season too. Um, once we start getting into DFS stuff, man, because this is, uh, I love chatting with you and bouncing ideas and talking about game theory, leverage variance, all this stuff that I hold so dear with you, man. Love it. Yeah. Likewise, man. And I, I think one cool avenue to dive into to keep this best ball thing going during the season would be the isolated weekly contests because you know, I'll be maxing those. So yep. th- th- that might be something, you know, same sort of thing to dive into as well. Yeah, man. Um, hit listeners with your Twitter tag and then give us an update on the podcast that you were, uh, talking about last time. Yeah. Um, roto underscore run. Uh, it's a throwback to a website that I started like six or seven years ago. And then I just kept running with it. Um, but the website's long since gone, but that's me (laughs) on Twitter, roto underscore run. And, um, yeah, the podcast is, is coming. I, I kind of jumped the gun on how soon I could get it done. And, Uh you know, I ended up playing whole bunch of poker stuff and then a whole bunch of weddings and I've been traveling and bouncing around and then I got pretty sick. So it's coming, I promise. Um, and I'm going to do some streams too. I'm going to, I'm going to start, I'm getting really into this and I really enjoy like the conversation associated with it. And it'd be great if we could do a couple together, but I want to do a yeah. couple draft streams and just jump in the streets here and have some laughs, whether anyone cares to watch or not, who cares? It'll be fun. Um, but yeah, no road underscore run for now and some pods are coming. And, uh, and if you haven't read, uh, Mark's GTO courses, read them. Appreciate that, man. And definitely (laughs) I am, I'm in for those streams, dude. Let me know. All right. Sounds good, brother. All right, guys, we are going to get out of here. You will be listening to this again. Uh, these come out every Friday morning around 9 AM. Um, and we will see you next week with a brand new slew of guests. Peace. See you.